At this time, any children that are attending the children's lesson can meet their teachers in the back. They'll be rejoining us at the end of the service. Everyone that's hanging out in here and joining us can please turn their Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 5. 2 Kings chapter 5. This summer we've been looking at some of the stories from the life and ministry of Elisha, not Elijah, Elisha, uh, the prophet who succeeded Elijah in Israel's ministry. And seeing in the, the ministry of Elisha the power of God to restore His people. And today we're looking at 2 Kings chapter 5. I'll be reading verses 1-19. through 19. Hear now the word of the Lord. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, when this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me. And stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, Wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company. And he came and stood before him, and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives before, before whom I stand, I, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, If not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. In this matter may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Ramon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. He said to him, Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. 
in the, uh, in, the, in the book, The Return of the King, the final book in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, there is a whole chapter dedicated to one place in the city of Gondor, a place called the Houses of Healing. In the Houses of Healing, after the great battle of Gondor, uh, all those who have been injured are brought to the Houses of Healing where they will be restored, where they can recover from their wounds. And what Tolkien describes happening there in the Houses of Healing is more than the, the mending of broken bones and the stitching of, of skin. He focuses instead on two characters, Eowyn of Rohan, a, a woman who had fought in the battle, and Faramir of Gondor, one of the captains who had fought. Their wounds, though they were injured in battle, their true wounds were not broken bones or torn skin. It was rather wounds of the soul. Deep wounds that had been inflicted over the years by their families, by their society, by history, by their culture. And Tolkien describes that as their bodies received healing, something more significant was going on. And the the master of the house of healing looked on with pleasure as he saw Eowyn and Faramir not only recovering physically, but receiving the more significant healing of their souls. Tolkien, who by all accounts was a believer, was reminding us that healing is not just about broken bodies. And whenever the Bible describes miraculous healings, whether through Jesus or the apostles or the prophets like Elisha, the healing itself is meant to point towards a greater work of God. The work of healing all creation. The healing of the souls of men and women. So as we read this story of Naaman's healing, we should glean from it what we can about God's manner of bringing healing into our lives. Not just temporary physical healing, but also the healing of addictions, of suffering, of broken relationships, of all the things that show of the deeper wound that we experience. And most importantly, we will see how through Jesus He heals the deepest wound of all, the sin that separates us from Him. So as we look at this story of Naaman's healing, we will ask several questions about the nature of healing. And the first one is, why do we need healing? Verse 1, if you're an ancient Israelite, verse 1 is intended to make your head spin. It will dismantle your worldview. It begins by saying, Naaman, the commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor. So, To start with, we see right away, we're not talking about, as we have in the previous stories we've looked at, a a godly Israelite widow in crisis. Or a godly wealthy woman in the nation of Israel who who is coming with a a prayer request or a need or, or something that needs to be dealt with. We're not looking at a faithful Israelite here. We're looking at a commander of the armies of Syria, the nation that is at war with Israel. That's who we're talking about. And then verse 1 goes on to say that by him, the Lord had given victory to Syria. By him, the Lord had given victory to God's enemies, to the people who were oppressing and invading and enslaving and killing God's people. He was victorious because God gave him victory. I could preach a whole sermon on that phrase. I won't today at least. But the fact that God controls all things to such a degree that He even at times doesn't stand aside and let the bad guys win, but gives victory to Syria. 
Verse 1 continues, if that's not enough. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. He was a mighty man of valor, brave, strong, skilled, and yet he has a skin disease, leprosy, that, that would have made him an outcast. It would, have, it would have been something he couldn't get over. He couldn't interact in public society. He, was, he would be looked down upon for this. In the ancient mindset, and sadly in our mindset today too often, things like affliction, diseases, suffering, failures, we see them as punishments by God, don't we? I mean, that's, that's the whole point of the book of Job. If you, if you read through the book of Job, he is protesting his innocence and his so-called friends are saying, no, if you were innocent, you wouldn't be suffering. The fact that you are suffering means that God is punishing you. Don't tell me you haven't struggled with that thought in your own life or on behalf of someone that you love and care about. When something goes wrong, when, when health goes bad, when the market dips, when your family or security are threatened, there's that little voice that bugs you in the back of your mind or maybe right there out in the open that you can't escape that's saying, why am I being punished? What did I do? What have I done to deserve this? Because God surely wouldn't let this happen unless I'd done something wrong. How confusing then to pair up these two statements that God on the one hand gave victory and on the other hand gave affliction. The big picture of Scripture teaches us again and again that though disease and suffering and affliction may be punishment from God, we can never say with certainty that they are. Jesus makes this perfectly clear in John chapter 9 when the disciples, upon seeing a man born blind, they asked Jesus, well, who's being punished by this? Did he do something bad that he was punished with blindness? Were his parents in sin that he was born blind? And Jesus answers, it's not that this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. In that case, we're talking about a man born blind, lived his life into adulthood, blind. And the answer to why? Why did that happen? Jesus said, so God could display His glory. In other words, God allows and indeed causes us to need healing for His own good purposes. That's all the reason we are given. It is for His own good purposes. The story here does not bother to explain the why of Naaman's illness. Is it because he's leading armies against Israel? No. Is he prideful in his success and his valor? Is it because he worships false gods? The story does not explain, and the point is that's not the question. That's not the right question. We don't need to bother figuring out why he was afflicted. We should be less concerned with diagnosing the why of affliction and be more concerned with allowing our sickness and our struggles to lead us to the source of healing. And so then the next question here, after we've looked at why we need healing, and the answer being because God, for His own good purposes, allows us to need healing. The next question is, where does healing come from? Where do we go to for healing? That's where Naaman's story then takes us in verse 2. We meet an unnamed little girl who sets everything in motion. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl. And to be clear, the language is, is little girl, like a child from the land of Israel. And she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. 
And she said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who's in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. This, this young Israelite girl had heard of the great power of God at work through Elisha. And she knew that through him, God could heal her master. Kids, this, this story would never have happened if it wasn't for one little child speaking the truth about Jesus. We should not ever underestimate the power of even the youngest child who speaks the truth about God. And as an aside, look how incredibly gracious this child is. She's been taken from her family. Captured. Made a slave to a foreign general. And her thoughts are for the healing and the welfare of the very one who enslaved her. She's a living example of the command to love your enemy. So this young girl shows both courage and grace. Her suggestion sets up the theme of the story that healing doesn't come from the places we expect. Because Naaman, if he is to be healed, he needs to take the word of a captive foreign slave girl. Each one of those words is significant. Because in that culture, a slave did not have the right to speak up. A woman had no right to speak up or even testify in court. A, a child had no right to speak up. A foreigner had no right to speak up. And Naaman had every reason, therefore, to reject or even ignore the words of this little girl because it came from a source that by all human accounts was unreliable and unworthy. And yet he receives this hopeful message, perhaps as a last resort, and gets permission to go to Israel and the king of Syria even sends a letter of explanation we see in verse 6. He brought the letter to the king of Israel which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you, king of Israel, may cure him of his leprosy. Can you imagine being the king of Israel and receiving that letter? Hey, here's a man with an incurable illness. I'm sending him to you that you might cure him. The king of Israel responds with appropriate frustration and fear and says, I think he's just trying to pick a fight with us because I'm not going to be able to do this. And when I don't do it, then Naaman goes back and they have a grudge against us and we start fighting all over again. But the, the reason that Naaman went to the king of Israel was because uh, Naaman and the king of Syria assumed that those with the power to heal would be mighty people. They would be respected in the kingdom. They would be probably at the king's right hand in the king's court. Servants of the mighty of the land. That God's power would be subject to the powers of the kingdom. And that those who have such power would be heroes and celebrities. But Elisha, Elisha is not welcome in the throne room of Israel's king. Because the word of God was not welcome in the king's palace. If you could somehow separate the power of God to heal from the word and command of God to obey, then yes, this power would be welcome. But Elisha said, no, if you want God's healing, you also must obey and submit to God's word. Healing does not come from the successful, the famous, the influential, the powerful of the world. God's power to heal does not submit and subject itself to how the world wants it to operate and to be distributed. And because the world rejects God and His authority, we will not find healing that we need and seek if we look to what the world has to offer. Isaiah 53 describes the suffering servant 
who brings salvation, which we know to be Jesus. Verses, beginning in verse 1, it says, Who has believed what He's heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For He, the servant, Jesus, grew up before Him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at Him and no beauty that we should desire Him. He was despised, rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, He was despised. We esteemed Him not. Do not expect that the Gospel and that the name and the church of Jesus Christ will be popular in the world. I I hear it so much from American Christians despairing over the state of the church in the West that we don't have the respect that we used to. And and the the Gospel and the Bible are not believed like they used to be believed in the world. And, and, And the church has lost its power and its position. And I say, why are you surprised? We serve a Master who was rejected who was despised. And the Gospel that heals you is rejected by all mankind. Jesus came humbly and was not received. So do not seek Him among the mighty and the popular. And so Naaman, if he is to be healed, where does healing come from? It doesn't come from the palace of the king. It doesn't come from the halls of the mighty. It doesn't come from the realm of the popular. It comes from the servant girl. It comes from the prophet in the desert. It comes from unexpected, unpopular, unwelcome places. And when you find it, then the question becomes, how does healing happen? The incident between Naaman and the king of Israel would have been a big deal. The king tearing his clothes in despair and frustration, it could have led to war. So when Elisha hears about it, he sends word for Naaman to come visit him. And it's easy for us to read the story at this point and skim over details that we're meant to notice. To begin with in verse 9, says, So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. Notice what's happening. Here we have a mighty general with his no doubt impressive and large entourage, easily dozens of soldiers and servants, literally Hundreds of pounds of silver and gold and ten changes of clothes. Don't forget that. And, and they stand outside the humble home of the prophet. And wait. And the expectation would be that the prophet would come running out to the mighty general and, and go on his knees before this great man and welcome him and offer his home and his hospitality and whatever he had at the service of this mighty general But that's not what Elisha does. Verse 10, Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. Imagine driving eight hours to meet somebody. And then when you get there, they send their child out to the driveway and say, "Yeah, come back another time. We're about to sit down to dinner. But not only that, you know, he's treating Naaman as if he's a nobody. But not only that, the message itself is surprising. Go to the Jordan River and wash seven times. The Jordan was not an impressive thing. Especially in northern Israel, it was a common muddy river. Washing the Jordan, you might just as well come out dirtier than you went in. In verses 11 and 12, we see how Naaman receives this statement, this treatment, and this command. He says, Naaman was angry. 
And he went away saying, Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and, and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. So he expected Elisha to come out to him. He expected some sort of incantation or magical decree. He thought that Jordan was not worthy of his attention and he misunderstood what was he was even being told to do. He thought, well, if I just got to dip in the river and be washed clean, gee, why didn't I think of a bath? I could have done that back home. Healing doesn't happen the way we expect it to. Like Naaman, many of us come to the Gospel and expect to be acknowledged and treated special for what we bring. Like a Naaman bringing pounds of silver and gold and a caravan of gifts of which Elisha took no notice. And we come to God and expect the process to be more complicated, more magical, mystical, special, and to result in some sort of instant amazing thing. But the prophet ignores the gifts because healing is not something you can purchase. It's not something you can earn. God, have I done enough for you now that you'll fix my marriage? God, have I given enough that you'll solve my finances? God, have I obeyed enough that you will cure my addiction? I need healing, God. What's it going to take? What do I have to give? Such an attitude forgets that when we come to God, it is He who brings the gifts, not us. And then healing happens in such a humble way. Wash in the river seven times, right? Once again, it is the servants that come to Naaman's rescue in verse 13. My father, it's a great word the prophet has spoken to you. It's unbelievable. Can you believe what he said? Will you not do it? He, he, did he really just say to wash and be clean? You have to appreciate the wisdom there. Why not try? What, what's it going to hurt? This is true of the greatest healing. Our salvation from sin through Jesus. Not just any river will do. That was the point. You see, Naaman said, I, I can go wash back at home. I've got better, cleaner rivers back home. But when it comes to salvation, not just anything will do. It's not enough to just dip in a river. It has to be the river God has prescribed. It's not enough just to have faith. Faith does not save. Because there are people with tons more faith than you or I will ever have. But their faith is placed in the wrong things. Faith doesn't save. It is the object of faith that saves. As Acts 4 says, that Jesus was the stone rejected by you, the builders, which has now become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It doesn't matter how sincerely you believe if you believe in the wrong thing. It doesn't matter how many times you dip in the rivers of Damascus if God has said it must be in Jordan. It's true of the healings we seek along the way as well. God has told us what it takes to see healing in our lives, to see change, to see transformation. And at times, it seems too plain. It seems too unspectacular. We hear the commandment and we feel like, is that, is that it? I mean, isn't there some silver bullet? Isn't there a, a, uh, a secret prayer? I'm sure there's books out there with lists of secret prayers that I could pray. 
that God will honor? Is there some powerful experience? Is there some church I can go to where it's a little bit louder and a little bit more like a sense like miracles are going to happen? Isn't that what it takes? Aren't you going to come out, Elisha, and wave your hand and call out and do something spectacular? No. The command. Not just to be saved, but to be transformed after Christ's image is very simple and very plain. Believe the Gospel. Believe the Gospel again and again. Believe that God has taken away your shame. Believe every day that He has defeated your true enemies. Believe that He has given you as a gift all that you'll ever need. Believe that the Holy Spirit makes you able not just to hear the commands of God, not just to understand them, but to actually obey them. You're able to obey. Believe that the mighty power of God and the mighty love of God met on the cross and forever proved that whatever happens in your life, God both loves you and is in control. Believe that. And like Naaman, don't just dip your toes in the water once. Can you imagine if Naaman, after hearing the command, had gone down to the Jordan and stepped in the river one time and bathed himself one time and got out and said, yeah, that didn't work. I'm ready to try something else. No. He had to go in again and again and again until he was healed. Likewise, for you, believer, change doesn't happen always in a moment. How often do we need to believe? You need to keep believing. Keep on believing until you see the change. Until you see the healing. I promise you, on the authority of God's Word, that if you believe the Gospel in that way, persistently, faithfully, and start to live as if it's true, you will see change. So we've seen why we need healing. We've seen where it comes from and how it happens. But lastly, what comes after healing? What does it look like when it happens? In Naaman's case, at first, there was an instant, visible, physical change. Verse 14, he went down, he dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. With regard to the salvation of the children of God, our change, our healing, is just as real, it is just as instantaneous, but it is not always as visible. 2 Corinthians 5 says, if anyone is in Christ, he is already a new creation. Not he's going to be a new creation. If anyone is in Christ, you are already a new creation. The old has already passed away from you. Like Naaman's leprosy has passed away. And the new has come. Let's also see what happens in Naaman's life. The changes that result from the healing. First, we see that his experience with grace makes him want to be gracious. In verses 15 and 16, he returns to the man of God with all his company. He stands before Elisha and says, Behold, I know there is no God in all the earth but in Israel, so accept now a present from your servant." And Elisha says, as the Lord lives before my stand, I will receive none. And Naaman urged him to take it, but Elisha refused. Elisha had never told Naaman, after you've dipped down in the Jordan and see what I can do, then you come back and we'll discuss payment. No, there, there was no command to come back. Elisha said, go dip in the Jordan, be clean, and go on your merry way. 
But because of the transformation he'd experienced, Naaman wanted to give back. And with joy, he went back to the prophet and said, let me please give you something. Please. And Elisha said no, because he did not want to risk the confusion or the misunderstanding that it might seem like the favor and grace of God is something that can be bought. Naaman's healing came just as freely as the restoration to life of the Shunammite son we saw last week and the oil that was miraculously multiplied to free the widow's sons from slavery. They gave nothing in return. And just as freely they received. Naaman the powerful, the mighty, received just as freely. The next effect, the next result of the change is fascinating. It's, it's loyalty. Starting in verse 17. Naaman says, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. Um, what? Yeah, that, why does he need dirt to sacrifice to the Lord? Let's, let's Briefly, I want to peel back the, the cultural situation there. The people of the ancient Near East, like Naaman, believed that their deities, their gods, were restricted to the nation. And so, uh, Rimon, Rimon, the god of Syria, had power in Syria. But he could not go into Israel or Babylon or wherever and, and Egypt and exert power. The gods of Egypt had power in Egypt. The gods of Babylon had power in Babylon and the God of Israel had power in Israel. But Scripture says and again, again and again, no, the earth is the Lord's. and He has power through all the nations. But Naaman, operating out of this mindset, says, I'm about to go back to Syria. I'm going to leave the land of Yahweh I, I, and I want to worship Him. Can I take enough dirt... To, to set up an altar and make sacrifices on Yahweh's dirt and, and have like a, a satellite place of Yahweh's influence in my own country. Elisha doesn't bother to correct him. You know, he doesn't say, okay, let's sit down and talk theology 101. You know, the earth is the Lord's and all the fullness. You know, just take your dirt and go. Because the point is, he sees the great news that Naaman has been converted. He now knows that all these other gods are false. And he has worshipped the true God. The great thing is that this means that God was not to Naaman a means to an end. He was not just someone who would step in, intervene, fix your problems, and then you go on your merry way. Too often, we look to God as the fixer. As the one we go to in case of emergency. As the one we look to when things fall apart, but as soon as things are better, we move on. How's the saying go? There's no atheists in foxholes. And when you're in the middle of that crisis, of course you believe and you turn to God. But once everything's better, we forget Him. Proverbs chapter 30 includes this prayer. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, where, who is the Lord? Likewise, in Deuteronomy 8, Israel entering the promised land was warned Take care lest you forget the Lord your God when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God. I think we need to take that warning very seriously. Does that not apply to many of us? We are in our houses and we are comfortable. And what we have, multiply. And when we no longer feel needy, we no longer feel compelled to look to God. 
Only when we feel our need do we look to Him. Naaman did not feel that way. His need was met and he said, no, I understand this wasn't about me. This is about who has power. And as we are healed, we look to the healer because God's healing isn't about making us whole. God's healing is about making us His. It's about our loyalty. The last result of the healing, look at this in verse 18. Confusing, fascinating. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Rimmon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, when I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. What? I, mean, I imagine some of you, what, what is going on there? Naaman is about to go back to Syria. And he is the general of the army. He is under the power and command and authority of the king. And as the king, as a part of the state worship and the state cult, will go into the temple of Rimmon, their false god, the king will kneel and bow down. And when he does that, when a king bows down, are his servants allowed to remain standing? No, they are not. They have to bow down with him. You can't have yourself above the king. And so as the king bows down, Naaman, the servant of the king, also needs to bow down. But here he is in the temple of a false god. And he's bowing down. And he says, my heart isn't worshiping. I, I, don't, I know that's not a true God. I know there's no God except Yahweh. That's, that's an idol. That's, that's a piece of wood carved. Will the Lord forgive me when I'm forced to bow down in the temple of Rimmon? Now, what do we expect that Elisha, the prophet of the one true God, would say? We would expect him to say, no, you cannot do that. But look at Elisha's response in verse 19. He says to him, Go in peace. Don't worry about it. What do we make of that? It's a vague answer, first of all. It doesn't mean exactly yes, but it doesn't mean exactly no either. Significantly, Elisha seems to feel no need to correct Naaman. He simply says, Don't worry about it. Go and be at peace. The reason he does that is because the most important question was already settled. Naaman had already made clear who he worshipped, where his heart was. His heart, his life, his devotion belonged only to Yahweh, to the Lord. What that would look like as he returned to Syria and had to navigate life in a pagan culture when his job required him to do these things, that's not the most important question. And Elisha sees that the Lord has healed Naaman. Naaman intends to be faithful in his worship to the Lord. And so his parting words, go in peace, indicate a broad graciousness, a patience as obedience learns how to express itself. I've actually used this story on many occasions as a pastor in counseling Chinese believers, new Chinese believers in the mission field, young men and women still under their parents' authority, living in their parents' home, who have come to faith in Jesus Christ. And they suddenly realize, I've got to go home for this holiday where we're going to gather in the living room or at a grave and we're going to burn incense at an altar to our ancestors. And if I refuse to do that, because I'm a Christian now, if I refuse to do that, I'm going to be insulting my parents. I'm going to be cutting myself off from my family. I'm going to be kicked out of the house. I know that... that there's nothing there to worship. To me, it's just a symbolic act of reverence and, and respect for my family. But because I worship Jesus, am I in sin if I, if I do that before my parents? 
And we look at the story together. And we look at Elisha's response. Go. Go in peace. The broad graciousness and patience of God as we explore and figure out what it looks like to live the changed life He has given us. Healing does change us. It claims our loyalty. And sometimes that expresses itself gradually. And a Naaman might need to learn over time what faithfulness will look like. And until then, we go in peace. Am I saying that our actions don't matter? No, I'm not saying that. Am I saying that actions don't matter if our heart's in the right place? I'm not saying that either. I'm saying is that our actions are a fruit of what's in our heart, of our true worship. But like all fruit, it takes time. And we should not judge one another if we do not possess today the maturity that we may express ten years from now. And until then, the Lord is gracious, allowing the work of healing, the work of sanctification to grow in you and me. And so I counsel you, brothers and sisters, to be patient with one another, to be patient with yourself, and to ensure that first and foremost and most importantly above all else, your heart's true loyalty is to your healing. And as you learn and begin to grow in what that means and how that looks, go in peace. As we've seen as a culture, as a world, quite vividly in the past year and a half, part of the healing process uh, from a physical human standpoint is tracing a sickness back to where it came from. Finding the root of a sickness. We can do all we want to address the symptoms of an illness, right? Coughing, sneezing, fever, aches, whatever. But if all you do is address the symptoms and don't trace something back to the root to what it's caused by, then healing will never happen. Every sickness, every struggle, everything in your life that needs healing is a symptom of a deeper, more enduring problem. And sometimes we think or feel that God is ignoring our need to be healed because there's problems in our life that aren't being healed, that aren't being fixed, that seem to perpetuate for years, for decades, and God is not changing a thing. Really, we're just focused on the symptoms where God is addressing the deeper sickness. All the misery, all the sin of the world and of your life is but the fruit of a seed planted long ago. Rebellion against our Creator. And that real sickness, that deep seed, has been fully healed in Jesus. We looked at Isaiah 53 earlier. A few verses later, it describes Jesus saying He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds, we are healed. There on the cross, Jesus took our sin, our suffering, our struggles. He was crushed for that. Our sin has been dealt with. We don't need to show up at the prophet's door to make it happen. It's already happened. Your real healing happened before you knew you were sick. And God, the healer, comes to you and by grace invites you to be healed, to be forgiven, reconciled. Will we still hurt? Will we still get sick? Will we still lose loved ones? Will we still suffer? Will we still grieve? Yes. Even though that deep sickness has been healed, we will still experience those things, but not for long. 
if your soul's deep sickness has been healed, then this life becomes a process of dipping into the Jordan again and again until the day when you emerge and see that everything, everything is restored and made new. We have great hope that day is coming surely because the work of it has already been done in Jesus Christ. Let's thank Him, our great healer. Our Heavenly Father, You have known our need better than we have known it ourselves. You have met our need and healed us before we knew that we needed it. You have graciously given us every resource to live as changed and transformed men and women. We pray that by Your Spirit, we would have a greater trust in Your work and Your timing. And as we do so, we pray that the healing You have given and the healing that You have promised would turn our loyalty towards You. Thank You for Your goodness to us in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.